2: Campside Media.
0: Hello. What is the uh, What do you want what to say? Is going on here? Like oh, it's why? just um. Chameleon. Chameleon. Okay.
1: You're listening to Chameleon.
2: A production of Campside Media.
1: Oh. <laughs> Quick warning. There's some language in this episode that might not be appropriate for younger listeners. I have a theory about how Dennis could have fooled Emil during Operation Botox, and how Emil could have fooled Dennis. It occurred to me on a flight. I store my audio equipment in a hard, black Pelican case. And as a result, I get a lot of attention at airports. Security officials suspect I have a gun and ask me to open the case. Customs officials always search it. My seatmates on airplanes often notice the case, too. What's in the case, they ask. I'm always honest. Recording equipment. I'm a journalist. And then I say something vague. I don't like talking to strangers about my work. But being vague just generates more questions. What's the story about? I've often wondered what I could say to avoid these kinds of questions. Maybe I could claim to be a photographer for National Geographic. That's my camera in the case, I'd say. I go to dangerous, hard to reach places. But the thing about that cover story, as fun as it might be to tell to a stranger on a plane, that, what if that person is a real photographer? How far would I go? How many more lies would I tell? In order to avoid having to admit that I just lied in the first place, for no reason. Or what about this? What if the guy next to me on the flight? What if he's lying about being a photographer too, just for shits and giggles? How far would each of us go to maintain our lies? And while each of us is working so hard to maintain our lies, would we miss the clues, the tells, that might suggest the other person is lying? Yeah, of course. Because you're too wrapped up in your own lie to question the lies you're being told. And that's, I think, part of what happened in Operation Botox. Everyone was so busy lying, so busy pretending to be someone they're not, that no one could see the other's lies. I'm Trevor Aronson, from Campside Media. This is Episode 9 of High Rollers, Season 2 of Chameleon. A lot of people put on an act and pretend to be something they're not. And when they're doing that, sometimes they can't see how others are doing the same. You know, all the world's a stage. While I was reporting this series, I came across a lot of people putting on acts, pretending to be different kinds of people than they really were. As I was trying to make sense of how everything happened in this story, I circled back to talk to many of the characters you've met in this podcast many of whom, I thought, were putting on acts in some way or another. One of the few people that I didn't think was putting on an act was Paul Langstrom, the jailhouse lawyer who became Gus's friend. Paul Langstrom helped Gus when he first got to Pahrump. Paul saw Gus as a bit of a specimen, a square kind of guy, as Paul put it. Not the type you're supposed to find in Pahrump. That was bad. You're in a big dorm with 90 other
3: Men that mostly don't like each other. A lot of them have mental issues, d- substance abuse issues that are, that, I mean, they're coming right off the streets.
1: Paul was in Pahrump because he was convicted on a drug charge for selling ecstasy to a friend. A friend Paul didn't realize had become a government informant. While in jail, Paul explained to Gus how he should request the evidence from his case and review it. And that's how Gus started to figure out what happened in Operation Botox. Paul since completed his sentence for the ecstasy bust. So I went to see him during one of my visits to Vegas to catch up. He's living in a recently built two-story house not far from a large park in Henderson, a suburb of Vegas. He's got a few cars in the driveway and an expensive motorcycle in the garage. Turns out, Paul Langstrom's apparently one of those guys you've been hearing about in the news a lot lately. Someone who says he got rich from the cryptocurrency Bitcoin.
3: I buy a lot of stupid stuff, but, like, I bought a $50,000 motorcycle and my friends are like, oh, that's, okay. well, really, if you think about it right now, it's like, I, I spent five bitcoins. The most I ever spent on a bitcoin was like $3. So it's really only a $15 motorcycle. You
1: know, like, you know, like, fuck you. Paul says he started collecting bitcoins during the early days, when it was cheap and most people figured cryptocurrency would be a worthless investment. Today, a single bitcoin is worth about $30,000 though the price fluctuates considerably day to day, and it could be worth a lot more, or a lot less, by the time you hear this episode. During those early days, Paul says he was active in an online Bitcoin discussion forum. The people on the forum had organized a contest, free Bitcoins for anyone who got a tattoo of the Bitcoin symbol, which is a capital B with two lines each at the top and bottom. Kinda like if you swap the S for a B in the dollar symbol
3: you got it on your neck or something, maybe 50, 200 bitcoins was the max, they had. that's what they were, the bounty was, they were a pool of 200 bitcoins.
1: Back then, for a guy to get the 200 bitcoins, he had to get the tattoo on his forehead. Paul wasn't willing to do that. But for women, the tattoo contest rules were different. A bitcoin tattoo below a woman's panty line, that was also worth 200 bitcoins. So Paul told his wife about the challenge, and she agreed to get the tattoo and post a picture to the forum.
3: She said it was really painful, though.
1: 200 Bitcoins at around $30,000 apiece, the going rate for Bitcoin as I'm recording this. Today, that tattoo is worth about $6 million. With money not much of a concern, Paul tells me he's planning to enroll in law school, just for fun and the intellectual challenge. We're talking about Operation Botox. I enjoy talking to Paul Engstrom because he spent about as much time looking into the case as I have. Paul's read the court filings and listened to the undercover recordings. He's become obsessed with the case, too. I'd say the, the love triangle thing, it's, it, that's iffy, but I, I do know that
3: if Emil wouldn't have been posting derogatory things, that this wouldn't have happened.
1: He does think that the FBI targeted Emil because of Paul Pata, though. He thinks Paul heard about Emil possibly being dirty from Emil's ex-wife, Carol Ann Cheney, who claimed Emil had embezzled money and that she suspected he was involved in money laundering.
3: There's nothing wrong with that. At that point, Paul Paddock calling one of his buddies in the FBI, be like, hey, I just talked to this woman who, whose ex-husband was using her email to post this stuff about me, and she said he's involved in a bunch of stuff, so maybe you should check it out. To me, that doesn't, that doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with that. And whether or not Carol Cheney was telling the truth or what, you know, maybe she thought it was the truth, when that's presented to Paul Patta, he doesn't need to really do anything to verify that. He just heard that this guy might be involved in some illegal activity. He's already not too happy with Emil, because of Emil posting all this derogatory stuff on a website about him. So I really don't think it had a whole lot to do with the, the love triangle. That might have been why Emil was par- posting this derogatory information. So I guess it was the seed that sprouted everything. But it's not like they had a love triangle, then Paul Patti went after Emil. Emil did something, and Paul Patta was r- responding to that.
1: The thing is, a few months after I had this conversation with Paul Engstrom, I heard something that surprised me. At first, it made me think of something he had told me about Gus.
3: There's different kinds of people. There's people that are criminals and people that aren't. Um, Gus is not.
1: turns out, I was apparently wrong about Paul Engstrom not being one who's putting on an act. Because, according to the Justice Department, he's not just a jailhouse lawyer who made the mistake of selling ecstasy to the wrong friend he's apparently a sophisticated criminal. Local DEA agents bust an online drug ring that was being run right here in the valley.
0: Investigators say a team of men sold cocaine through the
1: mail. In June, as I was finishing this podcast, Paul Langstrom and three accomplices were arrested in Las Vegas on federal charges of conspiracy to distribute cocaine and money laundering. Investigators say the four men worked out of at least two stash houses across the valley, including this storage unit near McCarran Airport. There, the team packed thousands of orders into priority mail envelopes, sending them right through the postal service. The DEA started an investigation of Paul Engstrom, just a couple of weeks after I'd met with him at his home. The Justice Department alleges that Paul sold cocaine on a dark web marketplace, in that he and his accomplices accepted payment only in Monero a cryptocurrency that is commonly used in dark web markets. Here's a DEA agent speaking to a Las Vegas television reporter after Paul Engstrom's arrest.
0: They will go to extremes to try not to get caught. So they might go to every post office in the valley and just deliver one package to not bring extra attention to themselves, but they're still doing it in a mass volume.
1: So maybe Paul Engstrom's story about his wife's $6 million Bitcoin tattoo and making early investments in Bitcoin Maybe that isn't the full story of his path to financial security. Maybe that's just part of his act. And I was too busy playing Operation Botox investigator to see that Paul Engstrom, like a lot of others in Operation Botox, wasn't what he appeared to be. More after the break. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media.
0: hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy
1: Tapes. You're listening to Camellia from Campside Media. Okay, so a question in Operation Botox is, did Las Vegas lawyer Paul Pata play any role in getting the FBI interested in investigating Emil Buhari? In thinking about this question, I have to admit that a part of me empathizes with Paul Pata. I think Paul had plenty of justifiable reason to be furious with Emil Buhari. And I don't think Paul was upset about any sort of love triangle, as Emile would have everyone believe. No, I think Paul Pata was mad about those bad reviews about him on the Internet. Mad enough that he filed a lawsuit against Emile. So maybe, somehow, Paul Pata did find a way to get the information from Emile's ex-wife to the FBI. The unsubstantiated claims that Emile had embezzled money and was into money laundering. If Paul had done that, then, well, would that have been so wrong? He'd just be passing on some information about a guy who'd maligned him to some people he knows at the Bureau. There is something uniquely satisfying in revenge, right? But it's what would have happened next that's the scandal in all this. If the claim that Emil had embezzled money and was in the money laundering wasn't true, and there was no evidence to suggest it was true, then how could the FBI spend two years investigating him as part of Operation Botox and setting Emil and his friends up in a money laundering sting? Didn't the FBI agents realize at some point that Emil wasn't a sophisticated criminal? that he wasn't the head of some sort of criminal enterprise? So this gets me to my theory about Operation Botox, the one I was telling you about earlier in this episode, about how it's easy to fall for lies when you're too preoccupied spinning your own. Emil spent a lot of time trying to sound like an experienced money launderer, like here, when he's talking to Dennis. You know, you're going to be
0: getting cash over there. Well, and that's fine because I can put them in security deposits and I can put cash and that's easy. So what do you need help from us? No, it's like, what
1: can we do? I suspect Emil may have been so distracted trying to present himself as an experienced money launderer that he didn't see the tells that suggested Dennis and Michelle were actually FBI guys. But was that Emil's responsibility to see Dennis and Michelle for who they really were? Was it Emil's fault that he fell unwittingly into the FBI's trap? No, I don't think so. Because I don't think the FBI should have been there investigating a meal in the first place. For the most part, the FBI isn't supposed to behave like this and pursue such transparently awful cases as Operation Botox. That is? Except in Las Vegas, where the FBI office there has become a wellspring of bad cases and problem agents. The Las Vegas FBI office is small compared to the Bureau's big offices, like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami but Las Vegas has a way of attracting big cases. America is a nation in mourning tonight for victims of the deadliest mass shooting in modern US history. Good evening. It happened late last night just behind me. That is the 43-story Mandalay Bay Hotel and Casino. Las Vegas police say a heavily armed gunman broke windows on the 32nd floor and fired down on thousands of people attending an open-air concert. Being federal cops in Sin City can be a busy job. Las Vegas is actually not a huge city, but it gets the type of high-profile cases that much larger cities get. That means agents at the Las Vegas FBI are expected to punch above their weight. The FBI established a permanent presence in Las Vegas in 1961, as the neon-lit city in the middle of the desert was growing rapidly. Before then, the FBI had investigated Las Vegas from more than 400 miles away in Salt Lake City. From its start, the FBI's Las Vegas office focused on organized crime cases, given the mafia's long history in America's gambling capital. On Valentine's Day in 1979, FBI agents raided the Tropicana, resulting in convictions that finally dislodged the mob from the famous casino. Nearly two decades later, in 1997, FBI agents in Las Vegas set up a social club called the Seabreeze to lure local mobsters to one place so that agents could secretly listen to them discuss past and future crimes. They called it Operation Thin Crust, a reference to the fact that agents were trying to figure out who had killed the Vegas contact for a Chicago mob family. Chicago, Thin Crust Pizza, Operation Thin Crust. Yeah, there's that FBI sense of humor again. But over the last decade, the Las Vegas FBI hasn't been known for cleverly named investigations of wise guys. At the time that Chuck and Dennis were investigating Emil and his friends, The Las Vegas office of the FBI was building a reputation for being home to some cowboy agents who pushed the bounds of, and sometimes even clearly violated, constitutional protections. While Chuck and Dennis were working on Operation Botox, some of their colleagues in Las Vegas were investigating Paul Fua, an Asian businessman and high-stakes poker player whom ESPN has described as the world's biggest bookie. In June 2014, Paul Fua was arrested in Macau on charges that he and others were running an illegal bookmaking ring that allegedly took in more than $147 million in bets on the Soccer World Cup. Paul Fua was released after his arrest and then hopped on a flight to Las Vegas. Once in America's gambling capital, he rented a villa at Caesar's Palace and allegedly set his operation back up to take more bets on the World Cup. That's where the FBI came in. The agents were pretty sure they knew what Paul Fua was doing at Caesar's Palace. But they couldn't get enough evidence to support a search warrant. So the Las Vegas FBI guys hatched a harebrained and patently illegal scheme. They cut the internet to Paul Fuwa's villa, with help from the management at Caesars Palace, and then federal agents dressed up as internet repairmen, ready to fix the outage. The FBI guys were, of course, wired up with hidden cameras as they entered the villa.
0: I'll take a look at the router. That's probably where
1: the problem is. That was one of the FBI agents in the villa, Claiming that he was going to look at the router to diagnose the internet problem. But that wasn't really what he was doing. The FBI agents in the villa were looking to see who was in the room and what websites they were using.
0: I got the URL for the site that they were wagering on.
1: That was an FBI agent after he left the villa. The FBI later arrested Paul Fua on conspiracy and illegal gambling charges. The Justice Department's entire case rested on the evidence the FBI found while pretending to be internet repairmen. And that was a huge problem. The FBI's ruse, well, clever, sure, was an illegal search. The FBI used evidence it gathered during the illegal search to apply for a legitimate search warrant, a bold attempt to make their illegal search somehow legal. The FBI's antics made national news. In a 32-page decision, U.S. Magistrate Judge Peggy Lean called the search warrant fatally flawed, saying the application misled the magistrate judge into believing the warrantless searches were constitutional. She supported the defense's motion to suppress most evidence collected after the raid. The government's illegal gambling case collapsed. Federal prosecutors were forced to dismiss the charges against Paul Fua, who was also acquitted of charges in Macau. The Las Vegas FBI attracted a lot of big cases in 2014, the same year Chuck and Dennis launched Operation Botox. Also that year, the FBI's Las Vegas office was investigating local rancher Clive and Bundy, following his well-publicized armed standoff over cattle grazing fees and the government's confiscation of Bundy's more than 100 head of cattle. Dozens of armed militia members from around the country came to Bundy's ranch to support him against the government.
3: Tensions reached the boiling point earlier this week. Get out of here, you cowards! After simmering for years in a Nevada turf battle hitting rancher Cliven Bundy against the federal government. We haven't lost this battle. We're just barely begin.
1: The standoff with Cliven and Bundy and his dozens of well-armed supporters ended with federal agents standing down and returning the cattle. Here's a story, as it happened, from PBS NewsHour.
0: Rather than risk violence, the BLM did an about-face
1: and release the cattle, but the dust up has put long-standing disputes over western range rights squarely in the spotlight. The US government didn't want another Waco or Ruby Ridge, but didn't want to let Bundy go unpunished either. So the FBI's Las Vegas office hatched a controversial plan. They had undercover agents pose as documentary filmmakers who claimed they wanted to make a film sympathetic to Bundy and his supporters. Yes, sir. Uh, Mr. Bundy, the reason I'm calling is... This is an FBI undercover agent talking to Clive and son Ammon during the start of the investigation. I'm a Longo Productions. I'm a I'm an independent filmmaker. do a lot of documentary work, uh, predominantly documentary work, and I was uh, wanting to see if I could possibly get a few minutes of your father's time to sit down and possibly discuss some business opportunities. As with the case of Paul Fua, the alleged bookie, the Las Vegas FBI's case against Clive and Bundy and his sons blew up a judge throughout the case after the Justice Department was found to have hidden evidence. The revelation that the FBI in Las Vegas pretended to be documentary filmmakers, leveraging the trust that people put in journalists in order to secretly gather criminal evidence, has put the Bureau on the defensive. Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, a nonprofit legal service that works to protect journalists, is suing the FBI for records about its controversial practice of pretending to be journalists in criminal investigations. And since then, it hasn't gotten any better inside the FBI's Las Vegas office. In July, an FBI agent in Las Vegas sued the Bureau, alleging that she was sexually harassed in what amounted to a frat house atmosphere inside the Vegas office. FBI agent Karen Veltri alleged that she was harassed by two supervisors. One of those supervisors allegedly used his FBI phone to text her vulgar pictures. So, yeah. The FBI's Las Vegas office doesn't seem to have gotten much better since Chuck and Dennis launched Operation Botox. But there is a difference now. Chuck and Dennis are no longer there. More after the break. You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food?
0: Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No.
1: You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media. FBI Operation Botox was one of the last undercover cases that Special Agents Chuck Rowe and Dennis Lau worked on together. The FBI's dynamic duo has split up. Dennis retired from the Bureau and took a job as a professor teaching criminal justice at East Los Angeles College, a community college in Monterey Park, a suburb of Los Angeles. In online reviews, his students rave about him and describe how he talks about his FBI experiences in classroom lectures. But I doubt he's describing the experiences you've heard about in this podcast. Dennis did not respond to my multiple requests to interview him. When I visited Los Angeles recently, the pandemic was in full force, and so East Los Angeles College was closed for in-person classes. I wasn't able to show up unannounced at Dennis's college office. Chuck also left the FBI's Las Vegas office after Operation Botox, But unlike Dennis, he doesn't retire right away from the bureau. He takes a position as an instructor at the famous FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. And as with the case in the Philippines and Operation Botox, Chuck seems to get himself in some trouble. My colleagues and myself, we didn't join this outfit to get rich. This is an FBI recruitment video. FBI agent is a 24-7 job. When most people go home, they're on condition white. We're always at yellow. We're trying
3: to put bad guys in jail and stop terrorist events from happening.
0: What pushed me to apply was the mystique about it, that it's the elite law enforcement organization in the world. It just so happens that that
1: perception is true. A young woman named Gabrielle Barber saw ads like this one and decided to apply. She's an ideal recruit for the Bureau. Smart and college-educated, physically fit, and she speaks Arabic.
2: So the fitness test is um, as many sit-ups as you can do in one minute, uh, then a timed uh, 300-meter sprint, then as many um, push-ups as you can do, not timed, and then a 1.5-mile run.
1: This is Gabrielle.
2: And when I took this fitness test, I took it twice. Both times I had the highest score out of men and women. Two
1: years after applying to be an FBI agent, Gabrielle was accepted into the FBI Academy. When she gets there, she discovers it's a boys club. The experience eventually leads her to putting the claims you're about to hear in a federal lawsuit.
2: From the instant I got there, there were issues based on the way I looked or the shoes I wore during orientation. Um, I was officially reprimanded for, you know, not smiling enough, not looking pleasant enough. Um, things like that, that I assure you, a 40-year-old veteran male had no problem walking down the hallway without a smile on their face.
1: At the FBI Academy, Gabrielle meets Chuck. He's an instructor, fresh off of busting Emile Buari and his brother in Operation Botox.
2: His personality definitely sticks out. You know, he talks a lot. He talks fast. Um, he's always trying to make jokes, always trying to make people laugh. Uh, so when I first met him it was it was just in the classroom setting, right? It wasn't one-on-one, it it was nothing like that and just from the get-go I didn't I didn't find it charming, I didn't find it funny he was obsessed with just talking about his genitals I don't think a single class went by where he did not mention his dick and balls Um, occasionally he uh, made some joke about lasting 15 seconds during sex, just things that I don't expect any middle-aged man to talk like that to me and uh, just from the get-go, I didn't laugh. I didn't feed it. And some of the other men in the class, he had spoken to, um, and they told me that he was like, yeah, I don't think Gab thinks I'm very funny. She doesn't laugh at my jokes. And just things that from the beginning, he seemed to be aware of the fact that I don't think your jokes about your balls are funny. And I, it's not part of the FBI training academy curriculum for me to laugh at them.
1: As a reminder, there appears to be a pattern here. Gabrielle isn't the only one to claim that Chuck is seemingly obsessed with his balls. The Filipino guys he busted in the questionable arm smuggling case, they said the same thing. That Chuck would often make crude comments and jokes about his balls. His balls, that balls. You know, Yogi, you will know, make her suck your balls. Like,
2: I, I, I fuck, but what, do you, what do you have? What do you have a fixation balls?
1: Remember that? That's Yogi, one of the guys Chuck set up in a gun smuggling case in the Philippines. Here's Gabrielle again.
2: Twelve-year-old boys don't talk about their balls as much as Charles Rowe did in the FBI training academy in an official lecture.
1: According to Gabrielle, Chuck apparently isn't pleased that Gabrielle won't laugh at his balls jokes. And he singles her out, Gabrielle alleges, and starts gossiping about her with the other FBI trainees.
2: Your class was broken up into like four sections, you had a section leader, and I had um, some friends that were in his section and his section happened to be all men, so I guess he thought he could speak more freely with them, except more than one of those men turned around and told me some of the things that he said and, you know, he was just constantly inquiring about my personal life, my sex life, not in a way that was like he was interested in me, right? No, in in a derogatory way, like, talking badly about me, just in a very, very personal attack sort of way. And after I heard those comments was when I confronted him. All I'm thinking about is I want to be left alone. I don't want this grown man talking about me in in a sexual manner. I want to preserve some sort of dignity. Get out of here, start my job. And so I approach him and I'm so, so quiet about it and respectful and just in a way that he did not deserve. And And I say, you know, some people have... Told me that you've, you know, said X, Y, and Z, and at this point in time, he just categorically is like, no, I, I don't, I don't know what they're talking about.
1: But Chuck's behavior doesn't stop, Gabrielle says.
2: He got more repulsive, and I remember this one instance we were doing an exercise in um, choosing sources, and we landed on a woman as our source. And he instantly was like, no, because she's a woman and a woman can't be a source because um, they get too emotionally attached to the men and they will fall in love with these men and they won't be reputable sources. He also said that in there's never, not once, not in any culture's organized crime, has there been a female member involved in mafia activities. And I was like, hmm. Sorry, and I said, so if I flip on the green side right now, green side means unclassified, and I just Google Female Mafia members, you're gonna tell me there will be literally zero results, and he said, yep And I just remember that and the class no one said a word But I know everyone I'm just kind of looked around and people were like Okay, and we just let it go cuz what are you gonna do? You can't fight an FBI instructor and especially not Roe. He'll just talk right over you And yeah, so I'll never forget that he went on a long stint about how women just fall in love and sleep around, and they can't be trusted as sources because of that.
1: Okay, and for the record, there have been female members of the Mafia. There have also been women FBI informants as well. Gabrielle's right. You can just Google it. So finally, Gabrielle's had enough. She files complaints about Chuck with management at the FBI Academy. That's when Gabrielle starts getting what's known in the Academy as suitability notations or demerits.
2: They present me with this suitability, and in it are a list of verifiably untrue things regarding email communication.
1: FBI Academy management claims that Gabrielle hasn't used proper protocol in emailing outside the academy, which, she says, isn't true. Gabrielle is also reprimanded for parking in the wrong section of the parking lot and for other petty and largely subjective violations.
2: And it included things like not smiling enough. It included things like Ro thinking I had an attitude. Not, not that I said anything, just like, facial expression has an attitude. Just things that... I, there was no documentation of me saying anything rude, just nothing like that. Uh, just exceptionally subjective, just not liking my face, and thinking I wasn't approachable enough. Just more or less wanted me to be a nicer little girl.
1: Gabrielle is then called before a formal review body at the FBI Academy, what's known as the Training Review Board. This review board doles out punishments, including expulsions, for misconduct by trainees. Gabrielle believes Chuck provided testimony against her to the review board.
2: He seemed to want to attack me and reprimand me and ruin my time there and eventually get me fired because I I didn't think he was funny, more or less, because I saw through his bullshit and I thought he was nothing more than a creep. He is just your average guy on the street who when you're walking by says something gross to you and and I no longer ignore those men anymore. Let's see, from probably the age of 11, those creeps have been saying things to me on the street and um, up until about a year ago I ignored them and I no longer do.
1: The review board expelled Gabrielle from the FBI Academy just a week shy of her graduation date.
2: They watched me pack my stuff and immediately made me leave.
1: Gabrielle believes Chuck helped end her FBI career before it even began. She then joins more than a dozen other women as named plaintiffs in a class action lawsuit against the FBI. The lawsuit alleges widespread sexual harassment and discrimination at the Academy and throughout the Bureau, and documents the allegations you've just heard from Gabrielle.
0: If you complain at the Academy, you get retaliated against.
1: This is David Schaefer. The lawyer representing Gabrielle and 15 other women in a lawsuit against the FBI. David has a long history of suing the FBI for misconduct by agents.
0: So when when women come to me and say I want to sue the FBI, I gotta be honest with them. You're gonna suffer for it. And heaven forbid you you speak out about it publicly, then you're gonna be retaliated against for speaking out. It's it's the another version of the blue wall that you see in local and state police departments. You don't speak out against other agents uh, or you're going to
1: be isolated and retaliated against. David's class-action lawsuit against the FBI documented Gabrielle's claims against Chuck, the ones you just heard, as well as allegations that Chuck made sexist and racist jokes and referred to a black trainee with braids as spaghetti head. Around the time that David filed his lawsuit, Chuck leaves the FBI. The FBI won't answer any questions about Chuck. Neither will Chuck, who did not respond to my multiple requests for an interview, which I sent to the lawyers representing him. The Philippines case, Operation Botox, and now the FBI Academy, Chuck seems to have a knack for escaping accountability for his actions. It's something that has bothered John Luttrell, the Los Angeles lawyer who revealed Chuck's alleged activities in strip clubs in the Philippines while working undercover for the FBI.
0: What might start as a persona or sort of acting as a bad guy can quickly turn into being a bad guy if that's kind of who you are anyway, and you realize that this is basically a free pass to sort of indulge that. This is John. If there's no oversight into how that works, it's going to turn out badly. Um, Because in the end of the day, if if you are prone to being a bad guy and you're given a license to act as a bad guy, what's the real difference. You literally become licensed to be a criminal, not just act as a criminal.
1: John tells me that he rarely talks to journalists. He has nothing against reporters. It's just usually not in his client's best interest for him to engage with journalists. But he made an exception for me, for this podcast, because of Chuck. John figures that if he couldn't deliver accountability for Chuck's alleged misdeeds at the FBI, maybe this podcast can.
0: I went to the Philippines, I found out what's going on. I got real witnesses to say what was really happening. I got objective evidence to prove it. I got a hearing, I cross-examined these guys. So I took my best shot, Um, but it failed. And so if one of the reasons I would talk to you is that if the legal system isn't gonna give accountability, maybe you can. This is like a poisonous dynamic in law enforcement. I don't think it's that prevalent. I don't. I think most cases aren't ha- handled this way. But if you're the person who is actually on the other end of a case like this, it can ruin
1: your life. John's not alone in wanting accountability. Gus Buari wants the same. Because, yeah, Operation Botox ruined his life. More in the next and final episode. This is High Rollers. In the next episode, you'll hear from Emile's friend Mary again and what she's taken away from Operation Botox.
0: I bleached my hair blonde so I'm not an embarrassment to brunettes, okay? (laughs) So anyways, I was like, oh my god, what idiot. So, yeah.
1: You'll hear how Emile was caught on an FBI recording, appearing to admit to his defamation campaign against Paul Pata. I can
0: destroy discomfort. I mean, he has no idea. Like I, if you can go online and find out every attorney's clients, Yeah. and I'm very good on the internet, I hire people out of India, and they can destroy a company online yeah. to
1: like $5,000. And you'll learn how Operation Botox spoiled one of Emil's relationships.
3: Again, I'm very nervous about you speaking to Emil because he's an insane maniac.
1: Chameleon season two comes from Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Trevor Aronson. Our executive producers are Vanessa Grigoriadis and Adam Hoff. Alex Yablon fact-checked the series. Marco Williams also contributed to Research. Mark McAdam composed the theme song. Doug Slaywin and Sam Leeds provided production support. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Grigoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed High Rollers, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other listeners like you find the show. And make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take me in, Sin City.
0: Take me in, Sin City. When you're
2: in, Sin City, no use confessing your
0: sins.